morning in singing out to God, reminded ourselves that we are who he says we are, that our focus and our hope is what he has done, uh, just the amazing grace of Jesus to do what we can never do for ourselves. And we've been in the book of the Revelation. If you'll turn there with me in your Bible, uh, you'll find that at the very end of the Bible, the last book of Scripture, uh, so just make your way there. This book, likewise, is a book of victory. Oftentimes we look at Revelation and and see it as uh, dark and foreboding, uh, maybe even fearful and unknown. But the purpose for which uh, this was written to God's people was to uplift, to strengthen, to encourage them in a time of awful tribulation. Uh, in persecution that really would uh, exceed the imagination of of you and of me who have grown up in a society where it seems distant and foreign to us that we would be punished for faith in Jesus Christ. It may not seem quite as foreign uh, as it once did. And in the, the remainder of my generation and our kids' generation, our grandchildren's generation, It may become more and more of a reality. But this is a book of hope in the midst of hardship. Uh, The fact of the matter is that in the book of Revelation, we do see the darkness depicted for us, but we see ultimate victory is had decisively by Jesus Christ. That victory will be realized in the future, but it was achieved in the past. It is said and done by the victory over death that Jesus Christ had when he rose from the grave. Once and for all, period, it happened. And so these people who are suffering here um, in this time uh, needed a reminder of this hope because they were strained to the point of giving up. They didn't know if they could make it anymore. And so the Lord provides this uh, reminder of the hope that we have through our salvation in Jesus Christ. We looked last week at a letter to the church uh, at um, Ephesus, and we knew a lot about Ephesus. We talked a lot about them, and today we come to the second letter that Christ uh, is giving to the Apostle John to send to the seven churches of Asia and to the church for all time. And this week the church is the church of Smyrna, a church we know nothing about, mentioned nowhere else in all the New Testament except for these four verses in Revelation. And so we don't have a history and a background knowledge, another epistle, the book of Ephesians, like last week to go back to. We only have uh, what God has given us in these four verses. But from that, we can see uh, that this is a letter of contrast. It is a letter of contrast. And what I mean by that is the circumstances in which the church of Smyrna existed, the hardship, the persecution, the loss, the betrayal, uh, the sorrow, the pain, uh, is different uh, than what they, how they were behaving. We would expect them to be behaving far differently than they're actually behaving in the midst of all this trial. And so this is a letter of contrast. I bought a, a couple of pictures today. The first is... Uh, from a Christmas movie that you'll know very well, uh, The Grinch, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, right? Some of y'all know How the Grinch Stole Christmas, uh, I think. But uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas uh, is a 
kind of from my childhood, a classic. And uh, this is at the end of the movie. Uh, maybe you know what's happening. The Grinch has slithered through the town, has taken everything, even the roast what? Beast, right? He even stole the roast beast for their meal, took it all back up to Mount Crumpet with his little dog, dressed up like a reindeer. And he went up there and saw all that he had taken from them and just knew that there was going to be wailing in the town on Christmas morning. And so with eagerness, he goes over to the peak of Mount Crumpet and looks down upon Whoville. And what does he see? He sees all the Who's gathered around the Christmas tree. And what are they doing? They're singing, right? A mismatch. It doesn't belong. A contrast. Something we didn't expect. There's another movie that's one of my favorites. Uh, it's A Wonderful Life. And uh, the next picture is from that movie of George Bailey. Who, who has ever seen this movie? Okay, most of you. And the rest of you should get saved uh, today. <laughs> this is a terrific movie. It's a long movie, uh, but I love it so much. Is it theologically accurate? No, okay. But um, George Bailey, by the end of this movie... He runs back through the town. Uh, he hated his life before. Even the little knob on the staircase kept coming off, and he just, uh, he resented that, uh, the things that his house were broken. He was poor. Uh, things were bad, and he, he gets a, a view of what things would be if he had never been born, and he comes back after that and is just rejoicing at the life that he has, and he runs through the town, and ugly old Mr. Potter hollers out the window and says, you're going to jail, right? He had misplaced some money from the broken down old savings and loan. I lo apparently, I love it more than you. But uh, anyway, <laughs> and Mr. Potter says, you're going to jail. And George Bailey screams throughout the town. He says, isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. A mismatch. I mean, you, you, we don't expect that uh, from someone going to jail to just be celebrating, rejoicing, even thriving in that fact and we do not expect that God's people in Smyrna and God's people today somehow find victory in the midst of sorrow even in the midst of persecution deliberate injustice because we are God's people but that's what's happening at the church of Smyrna and so let's read together in, in Revelation chapter 2 and we'll begin in verse 8, just read a few verses down to verse 11, and let's look at what we can learn about this church from uh, these four verses. And to the angel, again that word angelos uh, sometimes means angel, sometimes means messenger, just my view on it, nobody knows for sure. Uh, I believe this is messenger, and I believe it refers to the pastor, elder, overseer uh, of the churches. And, and to the messenger, or to the pastor, or to the angel uh, of the church of, in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now pause for just a moment. Uh, every letter uh, to the churches starts with an introduction of the Lord Jesus Christ by a certain title. All of these titles are combined back in chapter 1. 
in the introduction of Jesus. But to each church, they're given a different title of the Lord Jesus. I believe these titles are matched up to their circumstance. It's not arbitrary. Uh, a need is being met by reminding the church that this Jesus who is sending this message, uh, he is the first and the last who died and came to life. He died and yet he lives. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are, of, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Ten days could mean ten exact days. Uh, it could mean a, a fixed, determined period of time. It could mean ten months, ten years. People have all kinds of opinions. Uh, I, I, I believe the emphasis here is that it will be limited. It will be temporary. It's not forever. For ten days, uh, you, will be, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We're looking at a church here that refuses to fit its circumstances. And let's look at three ways that's true. The first is this. They had riches in the midst of poverty. There are two words in the Greek language for poor. One word for poor means, you know, you, you have need. The other word for poor means you're abjectly destitute. It actually means you're a beggar. You have nothing. And that is the word for poor that is used in this passage. I know your tribulation. That's just pressure. They're under pressure. They're pressed. And I know your poverty. I know your destitution. And in the midst of that destitution, in the midst of that poverty, Jesus reminds them, but you are in fact rich. I want to see two things here at first. The first is this, Jesus sees them in their weakness. He, that's exactly what he says. I see, I know your tribulation and your poverty. This is not a surprise to the Lord at all. He doesn't change it though, does he? Jesus sees them in their pressure and in their poverty and he doesn't reach in and change that. And I want to mention that today just for the reason uh, to, to kind of counter a lot of what we see on television and podcasts from health and wealth preachers who say that God's will for you, for every believer, is that we be influential, powerful, and wealthy. And they leave us with the impression sometimes that if we are not influential and powerful and wealthy, then it is because somehow we do not have enough faith we're outside of the will of God or we haven't sent enough money to that particular preacher right uh, that's the impression we're left with the Lord Jesus throughout scripture and here particularly does not communicate that his will for every Christian is that they be influential and powerful and wealthy he knows he looks upon the, the, the pressure and the poverty of that church. And he doesn't say, I'm going to swoop in and rescue you. 
I, I really, my desire for you particularly is to live in a big house with a nice car. He says, I see that. I know that. And Jesus still lets them be in that situation. Influence and money are not God's plan for this people. They may very well be God's plan for you, and that's okay. But they're not God's plan for this people at that moment in this time. Jesus sees them in their weakness. But secondly, in their poverty, there's an overriding reality of riches. Somehow, they have a sense that they are wealthy beyond belief, despite the fact that they have nothing to their name otherwise. We were in Jasper, Georgia this week. We had to make a trip there to visit or to actually exchange kids with my mom, my kid's grandmother. Uh, and so we met her halfway in Jasper to get the kids. We got there early and uh, stopped at a little Brazilian coffee shop uh, downtown and went in and ordered two small cups of coffee. I don't know if you've noticed this, but everywhere you go now, they want you to give them what? A tip, right? Is that, st is that Grinch-like of me to say that? That they want you to give it everywhere you go, no matter what. I mean, the lady literally poured a cup of coffee in there at the counter, uh, and she turned around the little pad. Have you been to these places where they turn that pad around, right? They turn the pad around, and they always say something like this. It's like they get together on this. They say, it's going to ask you a question. Well, I know what the question is, don't you? Do you want to give a tip? The, and it has suggestions of the tip, right? And you can choose the suggestions or you can put in your own, but that takes more time. And if you take more time to put in your own tip, they know you're being greedy and stingy and not giving them a big tip. The lowest tip, the lowest suggested tip for the two cups of coffee was $4 for a tip. I thought, man, how much is this coffee, you know? I, <laughs> Brazilian coffee, okay. And so anyway... Uh, so I chose, I, Erica, don't, don't get mad at me. I chose the $4 tip. I gave her a $4 tip. A uh, 15-year-old girl, looked like a normal kid, but I thought, she's loaded, right? I mean, I, <laughs> you got to give a tip everywhere. You, you might have looked at her and thought she's normal, but if everybody's giving her that type of a tip, there's more than meets the eye. There was more than meets the eye with these believers in the church at Smyrna. If you looked at them, you would think they're poor and destitute. They're barely hanging on by their fingernails in life. They have, in the midst of this giant city of Smyrna, with the power and the riches that surrounded them all, these people would have looked uh, as, as, as impoverished to our eyes. But there was something more to the story. They possessed the riches of having salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, according to Jesus being united with him in the kingdom of God is of more value than all other things combined. Do you believe that this morning? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13. He gives a parable, two parables really, but the, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells what? All that he has to buy that field. The next verse is the same thing about a, a merchant of pearls who finds a pearl of great price and goes and sells everything that he might possess that pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It, it, it's, if, it, if you stack up everything, all other things of value, 
and you weigh it out against the kingdom of heaven, salvation through Jesus Christ, guess what wins? Boom. Salvation. The kingdom of heaven. It is worth everything. And so we can be in abject poverty, in pain beyond expression, and still be rich because of what Jesus has done for us. Philippians 3 the Apostle Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count or reckon, I, I, I uh, calculate everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. We have riches in Jesus Christ. And only a right valuation of our gospel inheritance, only a right estimation of gospel inheritance in Christ can prepare us for godly suffering. We must know what we have in Christ. Don't ever lose sight of this. The world can do a lot to us, but it can never take that away, no matter where you find yourself. And the, the emphasis here, and even today, is for us to live up to that reality. Not to be overcome by suffering. Not to grieve like the Gentiles do. But to know there is a difference for you and me because of what Jesus has done. In their poverty, they had riches. But secondly, they had truth in the midst of falsehood. They had truth in the midst of falsehood. They were slandered in verse 9. This is maybe the most painful part of what they were enduring. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Were they actually Jews ethnically? Uh, I think probably. Uh, but what I think is being said here is these folks claim to be my people, they claim to be the people of God. They claim to have my heart, but they do not. Maybe they're Jews ethnically. Maybe they're the historic people of God. But in reality, they're not my people. They don't follow me. They don't represent me. They're, in fact, a synagogue of Satan. These are religious people. They're gather, they gather at a synagogue of some type, I believe, here, and, and, and they are slandering these New Testament Christians accusing them of falsehood. So not only were they oppressed and poor, they were mal maliciously and falsely accused by a group that opposed them. This was very painful. It was altering to their life. And a few things we can learn from this real quick. I want to remind you today, there will always be those who are religious but do not follow Christ. And there will always be those out there who are religious but do not follow Christ. Be careful, Christ follower. Be careful, because oftentimes people like that will resent people like you who sincerely want to follow Christ. I've had students who've come to our student ministry before uh, who've participated in the group, the activities, the worship. Mom and dad were great with it. You come, you know, I mean, come on, hang out. But when that student got serious for Christ, when they started making decisions because of what Christ had done in their life, when they started deciding their future based on a calling from the Lord Jesus, mom and dad were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It was all cute. It was all nice. When they were eating pizza and going bowling, 
But we didn't know it was going to have this dramatic of an effect on my son's life, on my daughter's life. There will always be those out there who are religious and they will oppose you and me. And we want to be legitimate followers of Jesus Christ. Be aware of these. It can be some of the most hurtful uh, accusations when someone who you thought was of the Lord comes against you. Secondly, uh, attacks dis- disguised in morality can really shake us, can't they? Attacks disguised in morality can really shake us. Uh, this, is a, this is a powerful act when someone comes at us with a, with a, a moral argument and says that you and I are wrong. And we sit, we're in a world right now that is celebrating as moral and as right and as praiseworthy all that God calls sin. And those like you and me who are sincerely seeking to follow the heart of God and we say we're on God's side with these things, they have begun to look at us and say we are immoral. Uh, That our position, that in fact God's own heart and his word are in fact the things that are wrong in this upside down economy. Be careful. Attacks disguised in morality can shake us, they can be powerful, and they can turn us upside down. And they are doing that to many Christians all over the place. I heard a little podcast the other day of uh, not an atheist, but someone who was uh, critical of Christianity and uh, they said, hey, uh, these, these uh, Christians need to realize that Jesus accepted everybody. That sounds very moral, doesn't it? I mean, that, that on its face sounds very convincing, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, if Jesus accepted everybody, uh, how is it that we're talking about sin here? How is it that we're drawing boundaries here? Let me ask you a real question. Did Jesus accept everybody? No. Did he accept the Pharisees and their sin? No, he did not. Did he accept the rich young ruler? He said, sell everything and follow me. The man said, I can't do that. I've got a lot. He said, the man walked away sad. The man came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. I'll go wherever you go, but I've got to go do this first. I've got to go do that first. He said, you don't understand what it means to follow me then. Did Jesus accept everyone? No. It's a falsehood, but it sounds moral to our ears. It is convincing students in school, young people and old people alike. We must be careful that we know this Jesus that we're following. These attacks disguised in morality can be very powerful, uh, even to us. The third thing is this. None of this changes the truth. None of it changes the truth. Jesus has given us a truth no matter what falsehood is surrounding us, no matter the falsehood that we find all around us. My son Reese uh, comes to me from time to time with a little tricky riddle, and he'll say, Dad, what does a spider make its web out of? I'll say, silk. He'll say, Dad, how do you spell that? Spell that. And I'll say, S-I-L-K. And he'll say, now say it five times in a row. I'll say, silk, silk. Silk, silk, silk. He says, what do cows drink? And I say, milk, right? He laughs and laughs and laughs. And here's, here's why, right? Cows don't drink milk, do they? They drink water, right? 
They make milk, right? But they don't drink milk. It sounds so convincing. And, of course, I said, well, the baby cows do. I meant the baby cows. That, <clears throat> they drink the milk. But, but it, something can seem so convincing. Something can, can come from a, a, a high platform of moral soundingness. It can, uh, it can seem familiar and aligned with uh, the notions that we have of God. God is love. How would God ever oppose any version of love if he is love? We hear these things. They sound right, but friends, they are not. We cling to truth because there is no other foundation that is unfair failing and unchanging and that's what these folks needed they needed that that would not fail them that would not change upon them when everything else was going haywire around them maybe that's you today maybe you're suffering in this life somehow God's given you a truth no matter the lies that are all around you don't you listen to that we are the church of the living God, First Timothy says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's who we are. Be a man or woman today who treasures God's truth no matter how badly anybody wants to take it away. And they did. These Jewish folks, the synagogue of Satan, man, were wreaking havoc on the hearts of these poor people. But lastly, they were steady in the midst of attack. They were steady in the midst of attack. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Apparently, there's more than just human effort at work against the Smyrnans. Satan himself is working against him. There are three things uh, that I think God wants to teach us here. The first is this. It's going to get bad. He's telling them it's going to get bad, isn't it? I mean, there, a lot's going to come against you. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. You're going to suffer. The devil's going to throw you into prison. A persevere unto, unto death. It may cost you your life, but it's going to get bad. The second is this. God is not unaware or helpless in this. He's not unaware of what's happening. He's not helpless in this. He could change it if he wants to. Right? This is God. He does see it. In fact, he foresees it. It's going to happen Satan is about to do this. God sees it. He knows it. And that leads us to understand that there is a purpose in this suffering. God somehow has a purpose in this suffering. Even a purpose in the handiwork of Satan against this church. That's hard for us to think about. Satan would tempt us and Satan would seek to harm us. And somehow God uses that. For a purpose. There is a purpose in this suffering. Yesterday when I was watching the game. With my daughter Olivia. We don't usually watch football games. But we did this time. We turned it on. And um, right off the bat. Something happened. You remember? A touchdown. A beautiful touchdown. An orange touchdown. Now this guy outrun, outran the two defenders by a long shot. I mean, just I'm almost first play of the game, boom. I thought, wow, this is going to be awesome tomorrow at church. Um, <laughs> they celebrated, and then not long after that, Tennessee had a, a turnover, or if that's what you call it, and a, an interception, and uh, they uh, intercepted the ball and, and got possession of it. 
uh, and they were, you could see the guys on the field just celebrating and just like, oh, man. Uh, and then after that, what happened? I mean, just disaster, right? See, it may seem here in Smyrna like Satan, like the wicked, are getting early victories. I mean, if they were to look around in quarter one of, of their Christian faith and they would have seen, man, Satan's winning over here. The synagogue of Satan over there are accusing us. We're poor and impoverished. Uh, it seems like the wicked are winning against us, but that's not the end of the story. God has a purpose for this, doesn't he? I think the purpose may be this. I don't know for sure. And it may be that God wants to say that no matter how severe things get, no matter how severe things get, you cannot destroy true faith, can you? I mean, maybe he wants to communicate that the work of God through Jesus Christ to save and secure his people is indestructible. And there are times when God just wants to send that message again straight into the domain of Satan. Okay, Satan, you want to test him? He wanted to test Job, didn't he? The Bible says he wanted to sift the apostle Peter like wheat. You remember that? He wants to sift you, Peter, like wheat. See what impurities are going to shake out. See if you're the real deal after it's all said and done. He came to the apostle Paul uh, with a messenger of Satan to buffet the apostle Paul. Do you remember that? Satan does this from time to time. And sometimes God just wants to remind and echo in the spiritual realm, you cannot undo what I've done. These are my people and no one can reverse that and he does it in full view of demonic powers he does it in full view of a lost world christian suffering is never without a purpose are you suffering today it doesn't have to be persecution maybe it's persecution maybe you're just hurting maybe you've even said god is is this how it's going to be? Aren't you there? Wouldn't you change this if you saw it? God has a purpose no matter what you're going through. I want you to know it's never without that purpose. It's never without his presence. And it's never without the fullness of his promise. We are never without the promise that Jesus Christ is victor. And in that victory, we conquer with him. And so today... There's an encouragement, even in this awfulness that we've seen here, there's an encouragement. We sang earlier, I love the words, Trey, see on the hill of Calvary. You remember that? See on the hill of Calvary, my Savior died for me. Sing for the freedom he has won. Even what? Death is dead and done. That's what we sang just a few moments ago. Why did this church have the ability to cling to this strength? Because of who Christ is. And what he had done. Who was he? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Nothing is going to separate us from he who is beginning and end. Who hems us in. Right? Like your grandma used to hem your pants. Who, who sews us in both behind and before. Both precedes and follows us. 
No one is going to take us away from him. After all, he has went through the ultimate enemy death and come out of it alive, alive so we can follow him. We praise God for that today. If you need a renewal of strength for the journey, whatever you're going through, I want you to take an example from these people. Take hold of him who has taken hold of you. Let me pray for us today. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine.